This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. Paul Rogers is a UK documentary wedding photographer. And before wedding photography, Paul was a photojournalist with the Times newspaper in London, where he photographed a full range of subjects from royalty, celebrities, and world leaders to war zones and natural disasters worldwide. His Instagram bio sums up his current approach nicely. He says, UK and Europe-based documentary wedding photographer, working with relaxed couples who love photography but don't want a photo shoot on their wedding day. I'm looking forward to having a chat to Paul, hearing all about his experience as a photojournalist and how he's transformed into the wedding photographer he is today. Before I bring him in, I just want to say that this episode of the Photography Experiment podcast is sponsored by the super talented digital editors over at the Image Salon, and I'll tell you more about them later in the show. Paul, welcome, mate. Uh, hi, Angie. Hi, thanks for having me. Mate, it's my pleasure. This is the first time I've talked to, I'm going to say, a real photojournalist. <laughs> <laughs> How was it as a photojournalist? Uh, yeah, it was intense. It feels like I've done half of my career. You know, I've had half of my working life, and now I've, I've swapped to weddings. I look back and I think, you know, I was a photographer at the Times for 17 years, and I, I think I was working in news for about 20, 22 years. It feels like a long time, and even though it was only a year ago, that feels like a long time ago now as well. 22 years as a photojournalist. I want to ask you all about that, but just to give the listener who isn't from the UK an idea of the Times newspaper, like where does that stand as far as newspapers go? Yeah, it's probably the most established broadsheet newspaper, not only in the UK, but in the world. Uh, it's got a, a really long history of great foreign news coverage and um, having a, a really strong readership in the UK. You know, it's the newspaper record. It's probably the most famous paper on the planet. And it used to have some amazing resources. They had a, a really strong foreign editorial team. They've had a great team of photographers for a while. And the last 20 years or so has like everywhere in news coverage, has just seen the budgets drop and, and it's not the newspaper it used to be now. But it's still, I think it's still one of the strongest voices in the UK. Yeah, right. So were you pushed out or did you leave? A bit of both, really. I suppose pushed out. When I started there, I don't think they had any staff photographers at the time. It was mostly freelance contract photographers. I don't know, there was two staff photographers when I started and about 10 or 12 of us on, on regular freelance work and then after a couple of years that changed to a contract basis where they took sorry probably about seven or eight of us on on a, a weekly contract and that's how it was for 15 16 years until I suppose the last two or three years when budgets have been tight and they've slowly been cutting back on staff they haven't been re-recruiting not just photography wise but across the board you know not just editorial either from every part of the newspaper has seen seen cutbacks and then it came to a head for me anyway, about 18 months ago, when they decided not to renew. There was five contract photographers left and they decided not to renew three of the contracts and just to keep two of them on. So I think they offered us a little bit of work after the contract had finished. But to be honest, when you're used to five days working at a newspaper, you can't really then go on to having no confirmed work for the next year. You just don't know you might be working five days next week and nothing, nothing the week after. Yeah, right. Wow. That's a huge lifestyle change to take on, you know. Yeah. Did you see that coming or did you think, I'm going to be here till I retire? <laughs> no, I definitely saw that coming. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. No, it must have been about 2010, I suppose, when I realised that the news budgets were, were dropping all over the place. And I think 
I think the, the problem has been with the increase in accessibility for digital images has had a real massive impact on the money that, that news organisations are willing to pay their own photographers to go out into the world and cover events. And that slowly was declining from probably the, the late 2000s um, through to three or four years ago when everyone started cutting back on their star photographers. So I knew that I was going to have to have some sort of exit plan in place. And I, I remember having a, a bit of a, a panic about five years ago, wondering just what the hell I was going to do in my life. You know, I'd only ever been a photographer and I'd only ever worked for newspapers. So trying to figure out what the next step was, I really did have a panic a few years ago about it. And that's I discovered weddings. I was going to ask, so were you sitting around with your other photography mates from the newspaper, you know, all discussing what the options were and did you throw or did someone throw wedding photography out there because i'd love to hear what you thought about that idea five years ago yeah cool i you know I, i'd avoided weddings for my entire career purely because of the preconception we've all had of wedding photographers and wedding photography and i don't really know any of my colleagues shooting news that were seriously considering moving into weddings because we all thought the same way about how you work on a wedding day and you know the kind of pictures that you produce which is not what any of us wanted to do it's only really when I discovered people like Jeff Ascoff and Neil James the kind of documentary wedding photographers that were working 10 years ago at least producing very very good documentary coverage of weddings that it's only when I really discovered that that was a, a market that I thought hey, I could probably do this for a living. Yeah, right. If you think back to the times when you were at the Times, like maybe back even a few years now, who was one of the photographers there that you would say you respected and thought was a fantastic photographer? Can you throw a name at me? You mean news photographers? Yes. Um, there's people like you know, Sean Smith at The Guardian. I don't know if you're familiar with any of these guys. Brian Harris used to work at The Times. Did you say Sean Smith? Yeah, Sean Smith. Okay, what I'm curious about, if you ran into Sean Smith today... Yeah. And he said, hey, Paul, what are you doing? How comfortable would you be saying, I'm a wedding photographer? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've had that conversation with many news photographers. Oh, you have? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, no, I am, I am comfortable. I mean, I spent three years at the Times with this transition shooting. Well, I started with maybe 10 weddings one year, probably 2012 or 2013, up to when did I leave the Times in the end March 2015, I left the Times. And in the year before that, I shot 40 weddings as well as working five days at the time, or four days at the time. So, you know, I was always having conversations with people. They could see my social media. I wasn't trying to promote it massively because I didn't want to arouse the attention of the picture editor at, uh, at the Times. Even though it wasn't interfering with my work, you know, I was just shooting on Saturdays, which is traditionally a day that I don't work for newspapers. But yeah, I had this conversation many times and everyone has a similar reaction as to, you know, why are you doing weddings? You know, it's all those group shots and people telling you what to do. It sounds like a nightmare. And what was your response? Or what is your response when they say that to you? <laughs> yeah, it can be a nightmare. But, <laughs> you know, I, I talk to my clients about this fairly regularly because quite often they'll bring up the fact that I was a news photographer. And often they'll ask, why do you shoot weddings now? And, you know, don't you miss shooting news? And I think, well, the response I have really is if you shoot it in the way that you love working, then it's not work at all. You know, you're doing what you're passionate about, what you love, what you love doing. As long as you, you don't find yourself boxed into doing something that you're comfortable with. And the thing with weddings is that in a, a typical eight, ten hour day, you can face the emotional kind of problems of shooting, light, tricky light situations, fast moving you know, situations that are similar to a news story 
all these things happen in eight to ten hours and it's a sort of situation that you can't replicate anywhere else and I could work for a month shooting news at the Times and, and not face any of the problems and challenges that you face in eight hours of a wedding. It's exhilarating, as you know. Look, it is exhilarating, and I do know it is, but it's hard for me to fathom or imagine that you would feel the same way having been to places like you know, Iraq and Africa and, and North Korea on assignment for a newspaper and then going to shoot a wedding. Yeah, I know. So you mentioned those places, and that seems like a long, long time ago now. But, yeah, obviously there's certain aspects of what I did for 20 years that I do miss. But the reality is, you know, I'm 43, I've got two kids. When I was doing all those jobs, it was probably at the time that I'd just got married or maybe just before that I was, I was going to some of the, the more dodgy places in the world. And you don't have the kind of responsibilities or commitment to someone else that, that I have now. Life changes and you have to adapt with it. And I think what I'm doing now, I, I had a great career at the Times and I really enjoyed every, every minute of it. But things change and, and this is who I am now. Sure. I want to dive more into the wedding side of things in just a little while, but if you're happy to, I want to take you back to when you started at the Times. Yeah. How old were you and how did you even get the job? Yeah, so to go right back really to, I first kind of got interested in photography when I was about 15 or 16, I suppose, at school and a friend was, was really into photography and he showed me about apertures and depth of field and shutter speed and we had, um, did I have my first camera, it was probably a, a Zenith, a Zenith, you know, the old Russian camera. Yeah. And a 50mm lens, and we'd mess around and I'd just experiment with the kind of triangle of, of exposure with film speed, shutter speed and aperture. And I really loved uh, messing around with that. And that carried on through to when I did my A-levels, which in the UK is 16 to 18. And I built a dark room in my mum's downstairs loo. <laughs> photographed all the usual stuff, the, the family dog, you know, canal scenes at, at the bottom of the house and trees and all the usual boring stuff that everyone ends up photographing when they first start out. But it was the, the black and white processing that I really fell in love with and creating, seeing an image come up in the dark room, you still, you, can't, you just can't beat that feeling, can you? I don't know if, you, if you've had, had much experience with film photography. A little bit, a little bit. I have had a lot with film photography, but not so much in the black and white dark room. I actually taught a course at TAFE, which is like uh, adult education out here, which was fun. I love doing that, but I haven't done a, a lot of it. Nowhere near as much as you. Well, you know, it was a fair amount back then. It was just a, a fun thing to do with, with, I had a couple of mates that were into it as well. And we used to have a, have a bit of fun just trying new things and figuring out how photography worked. So after A-levels, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And the subject that I enjoyed most at A-levels was physics. And that was seemed like the most appropriate direction to go so I applied for a couple of physics courses and got onto one in Cardiff it's the capital of Wales and probably a couple of hours drive from where I lived at the time so I started on the physics course there and in the first week went into we have this thing at university where the first week is like freshers week where you go in all the freshers the new new students for that year go into the students union and look at all the societies and clubs and decide what they want to join and and participate in and I found myself at the student newspaper. I think they had free pizza there, so that was a big door. <laughs> but um, it looked like a really interesting place to be. So that's where I started. That's where I actually met my wife. Wow. From there, I mean, I can imagine, so you're working on the student newspaper, you've probably got film supplied and yeah. they're paying for processing and stuff. Yeah. Is that enough experience? Is that enough of a portfolio to go to the newspaper and get in? 
Yeah, it was, you know, we had some fairly big news stories to cover in Cardiff. From a student perspective, there was things like student protests. We used to um, all come down to London for the student protests and photograph around Westminster. And we had interviews with local MPs and the Welsh minister, I think, and education secretaries. We had dignitaries visiting the university, I think. I remember photographing Mary Robinson, Irish Premier, and having one-to-one interviews, which when you're 21, 22, and you're still learning how photography works, you're kind of thrown in the deep end. But it meant that you, you, that I had no competition. You know, I was working on a student newspaper. So whatever you produce is what goes in the newspaper. So I built up a portfolio of work from stories and assignments that I was doing between lectures, between my physics lectures. And by this point, I realised that I really didn't want to be a physicist or whatever career path that physics was leading to, that I really enjoyed photography. And if there was a way of earning a living and doing that as a profession, then, then I wanted to do that. And there was a course, a photojournalism diploma course at Cardiff that was in its second year. It was run by a guy called Daniel Meadows, who had previously taught the documentary photography course at Newport College down the road, which is a, a pretty famous photography course. And that's what I decided I really wanted to do. But you needed to have either a first degree or be 25 and I, I think I was I was about 20 at the time and the fastest way for me to get onto that course was to finish my physics degree. So you did that and then did the course? Yeah that was the goal you know that was my mid-term goal I've always had throughout my career I've kind of liked to think about what I'm doing at the moment what I want to be doing in five years time and to try and think a bit further afield and that was that was my mid-term goal was to do that that postgrad diploma. I didn't know where that was going to lead but I knew that I needed to do something in the field of documentary photography to do the kind of work that I wanted to do. And were the newspapers, were they interested in things like, you know, a photojournalism course or do they want to see your images? Yeah, no, totally uninterested. (laughs) (laughs) I did know that. And I suppose, you know, if you want to photograph news or um, photojournalism, then there's a couple of different ways, directions you can go. If you go in the directions of newspapers, then it's very different from doing long-term photojournalism projects. The difference being that there's day-to-day money in news journalism and newspapers, and often that's why people gravitate towards newspaper photography, because the time and commitment and money that you need to invest in in a six-month project photographing a community, not many people have those kind of resources. So although that's where my heart lay at the time was documentary photography and and looking at these longer term photojournalist projects I knew that I just didn't have the resources to do it and before I joined that course actually I went to visit a local news agency in Cardiff and started working for them on the odd Saturday shooting rugby for newspapers in London football games you know shooting interview shots doing a couple of news stories that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and what so that was enough like did they advertise for a new photographer or did you just front up with this portfolio? No, I just, yeah, I looked in the yellow pages to see what the local news agencies were. This one was called Wells News. It was quite, it's probably a mid-sized agency. They had a couple of guys running it and they had five or six writers there, one full-time photographer, and then they used to use a couple of photographers on a freelance basis to fill in at the weekends. And the sort of thing they did... Newspapers and magazines based in London would commission local news agencies around the country to go and shoot the stories that they needed covering. So rather than sending staff out from London, they'd employ one of these agencies to, to go and cover a story or an article for them. And that's what um, Wells News did. So the kind of work they did stretched from 
beautiful features for the independent and the broadsheet newspapers you know spending a couple of days in the mountains and wells shooting a feature for them through to interviews with a family where the son married a close relative in his family and all sorts of stuff and for the women's magazines i can't can't remember exact stories but there was some (laughs) stories and that's the sort of breadth of, of work that you'd have to cover this is for the smaller newspaper up in Wales. I just want to sort of get to the stage where you're walking into the Times for the first time. Did someone notice your work? Did you go and apply for a staff job? Like how did that happen that you got to the Times? Okay, so I worked at Wales News for a couple of years, built up a portfolio of published images from the newspapers. I finished my diploma in Cardiff and then I needed a job. And so I can't remember how I found this job, but there was a job advertised at another agency in Birmingham called News Team. Now, they were a bigger agency than Wales News. They covered quite a big area of the UK and they had four or five offices dotted around. I went up to see them with my portfolio of images from the student newspaper and from the work that I'd done at at Wales News. And I landed a job there as a a staff photographer. I say staff photographer, but it was a very poorly paid job. I think I started on something like £9,000, which is barely enough to pay your rent and run a car. But I knew that this was the stepping stone that I needed to get into newspaper photography. At this point, I think I knew that I just didn't have the resources and the money behind me to fund long-term documentary photography projects. And the best way of me earning a living from photography was through newspapers. So I worked there for a couple of years, built up a bit more of a portfolio, and then decided to leave News Team and go freelance in '98. And that's when I went walked, walked into the Times. Wow. And were they blown away when they saw your portfolio? Or they just, was it like... <laughs> I wouldn't say blown away. I think, you know, working at an agency like News Team means that you're constantly on the phone to these guys in London. You're speaking to the picture desk. They're commissioning you every day. And so you get to know the picture editors and you know their styles and you meet them at social occasions. And that's really what gave me the way into the Times. I phoned up the picture editor at the Times there, a guy called Andy Mojer, and went to see him, showed him my portfolio, we had a chat, and I think I was in the right place at the right time. They needed someone new, and they gave me a couple of assignments to try me out, and I didn't screw it up too much, and uh, <laughs> consequently I think they started giving me work. That's awesome. You know, when I look at photographers today, and I talk to a lot of photographers doing the podcast they tell me they get inspiration, you know, it could be from other photographers, you know, modern contemporary photographers could be looking at the old masters. I mean, I don't know how you got your inspiration and I want to know that. Looking back at your career, where did you learn the most or how did you learn the most to be the photographer that you are? Oh, I think it's been a lot of trial and error. You know, there's... What, on the job? Yeah, on the job, just continually shooting. I think when you've been shooting for, for 25 years, pretty much every day, I've made all the mistakes out there and... You know, you don't tend to make them a second time or maybe a second time, but not a third. And the longer you do this, the more you you get to understand what works, what doesn't. And you can instantly go to the picture that you need to shoot. But having said that, I'm still learning. I still make mistakes all the time. And really, really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The day that I come back from a wedding or from an editorial shoot, and I think I've absolutely nailed that. And there's nothing I could have done differently and nothing I could have done better on that job. That's the day I'm going to hang, hang the cameras up. What's the sort of thing that you think that you miss? You know, looking at your last wedding that you shot, what's something you think that you could have done better? Uh, oh, God, I hope my clients aren't listening to this. <laughs> you don't have to give any names. We don't know when this one's going to be going out. No, you know, it's moments that I miss, you know. So it's timing more than yeah. technical stuff. Well, what, what I do now at weddings is a big part of what I do is 
following the action, following the moments, trying to anticipate where they are. I'm really not interested in all the standard wedding photography and wedding pictures that you think you must get although I know I have a small part of my brain that's thinking about that but mostly I'm really after those intangible things that you need to try and capture and I see hundreds and hundreds of those at a wedding that I miss every single time and the small percentage that I get is what makes up the gallery and my clients love it and I'm, I'm happy with that work but I know that there's tons of better moments that I've seen and missed or that I just wasn't in the right place at the right time I hadn't anticipated it early enough I was five seconds too late or the focus you know I missed focus all sorts of things Andrew that I wish I'd done better every single wedding that's the same thing I think any photographer listening will be able to relate to it's the same thing we all go through isn't it yeah I think and if you don't have that if you're not driven by by that feeling it becomes a job and you know it's not a bad job you get well paid and I think with experience it's easy enough to churn out the pictures but who wants to do that you know I there's tons of other things I could do that would possibly earn me more and might have a bit more longevity career-wise, but that's not, not why we do this. You don't think there's longevity in what you're doing now? Not as much as, as other careers, although I you know, think about my children. Now I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and I wonder what kind of job they're going to do. And I think it's very rare now that someone has the same job for their life, for you know, the same career for the rest of their life. I've reinvented myself, albeit again with photography but to move from news to weddings and I think that's not the last time I'm going to have to do that they will I've got another 20 years working and I don't think what I'm doing now is is still going to be relevant in 20 years time I hope it is but at the back of my mind I'm thinking about oh, there's all sorts of, of ways it could go from video capture through to just fewer and fewer people getting married I don't know right do you think there will still be photographers or you just think the whole thing's gonna it has a potential to disappear <laughs> could go either way I think the the video still capture is still in its infancy and that will have an impact on what I do. Mind you, people have been saying that for five five or six years now in, as far as news photography goes and we're yet to see that happen. And I think the discipline a photographer needs to shoot stills and to shoot video is still very different. There's obviously technical differences as to why you can't shoot great video and take some stills off it at the moment. But once those are resolved the aesthetic of shooting video is very different from stills. And as long as there's still that differentiation and people are willing to pay to have a stills photographer over grabbing stills off a video, then I think we've still got a job. But every week there's hundreds and hundreds of more wedding photographers out there. And at some point, we may already have reached it. The marketplace is fairly saturated already. And I've only been doing this for four or five years. And Luckily, my fees have been increasing each of those years, but I talk to colleagues who've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years, and they will say there was a, a golden era at some point in the past and that we're definitely not in it at the moment, and their fees have been falling ever since that golden era. But do you think, you know, they're talking about that golden era because they've already been through it? You know, maybe it's yet to come for you. Yeah, that's definitely the right attitude to think about this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, there's still clients out there and there's still a market for what I'm doing. And as long as there is, I'll continue doing what I do and earning a living from it. But I think all of us have got to try, have got to have in the back of our mind that we do need to adapt continually and it may be sooner than later that, that we have to implement that. Mm-hmm. I want to take it back to your newspaper days in just a sec, but I've got a, a photographer who shoots for me, who's an ex-newspaper guy. Yeah. He shot mainly sports for the newspapers. And... 
when he shoots, he shoots a lot. Yeah. Like he shoots on motor drive at a wedding and doesn't think twice about it. Probably because he's not doing the edit. Oh, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that the way you shoot too? Yeah, I would say it probably is, but for different reasons. Primarily because I used the Canon 5D Mark II for a long time. Which Did you use that camera? No, I'm a Nikon shooter. Ah, right. Where I was, yeah. The Mark II was a pick of a camera for focus. It was revolutionary in that that's what sparked the HD video kind of genre with using DSLRs. But the problem with the 5D Mark II was that the single focus point in the centre was was pretty good. It was okay, but all the other focus points were awful. And if you used prime lenses, and at the time I was using prime lenses and shooting fairly fast on those prime lenses, probably 70% of the images were not sharp. So the way I would shoot, I would use one-shot focus, which is what I still use now. I would focus, shoot, and shoot three or four frames of each picture, even non-moving subjects like portraits. If I was shooting at 1.2 or 1.4 and I didn't shoot like this, and I shot five frames, focused it on the eye, for those five frames, the focus point would have been on the tip of the nose or, you know, slightly behind the eye, and the image would have been unusable. So I got into the habit back then of shooting a lot, of refocusing each frame and shooting. And it's something that I can't let go of now, even though I'm I'm using the 5D Mark III and the focus is a little bit better. But I still have that issue where, out of 10 frames, maybe it's nowhere near as many as the 5D Mark II, but certainly a few of them have missed focus. So I tend to shoot a lot. I shoot about five to 6,000 frames a wedding, typically. And it will be in short bursts of two or three frames. And if there's a moment developing, then you never know exactly when that moment has peaked. So you shoot through it. And each moment might have 10 or 12 images from that moment, of which the best one is the one that I'll deliver. Do you know how many listeners you've just made so happy hearing that a pro photojournalist <laughs> misfocuses <laughs> and has the results that you're getting <laughs> god all the time uh, yeah I, I never never want want anyone to see my unedited files <laughs> yeah how many are delivering if you're shooting five thousand? between 400 and 600 i would say all oh, right so you do a hard cull yeah well I, you know i know that if i shoot five thousand frames i've probably shot six or seven hundred moments in those five thousand frames and most of them will work and there'll be an image from that sometimes there'll be a sequence of three or four images especially something like the confetti run or you know other other parts in the ceremony but generally i'm delivering one picture from each of those moments and now that's the same as someone shooting a thousand frames and delivering 500 of those where they might still have been photographing six or seven hundred moments but they haven't shot through the moment enough so they've only got a choice of two or three frames if that from each moment Talk to me about what do you mean by shooting through the moment? Well, so watching a, a situation develop, you've got a group of people chatting away and you position yourself. Firstly, I'm looking for the light and I'll try and find the best light, position myself for that light. And I might take a couple of frames there knowing that I've got a good frame with a decent amount of light. It may never develop from that. And the group that might have been the peak point just as you arrived and they suddenly disband and go, and go off and get a drink and you've got one frame to choose from there it may or may not make the final edit if it hasn't peaked and they continue chatting and laughing then i keep photographing i'm fine-tuning that image maybe moving a little bit looking at the distractions around people's heads and trying to just adjust my position so that i've got the cleanest shot possible keep photographing through that until at some point you realize that the best moment has already passed and you've you've shot it and then you can move on now that might take six to ten frames to get to that point it may never happen you may get to the point where 
you think you've got the best shot possible, you walk away and all of a sudden they all burst into riotous laughter and you've missed the best point, the best shot there. It doesn't matter. You move on and find the next one. Uh-huh. Okay. When you're shooting through a scene, you're fine-tuning your own framing and waiting for the moment to happen. Yeah, yeah, totally. Continually trying to improve on what you've just got. You get the safe shot and then keep working it. Yeah, and I think that comes from the news days where there's several different types of shot that I would have to take for a newspaper. And I've been in situations where you've been promised 10 minutes with a subject to do a portrait for an interview. You set up the lights, you've got three or four different locations ready to shoot. The guy comes and stands in there and you take a couple of shots testing the light and you're just about to adjust and move the position of him or yourself and he disappears and his PR says, that's it, he's he's too busy, he's got to go. And you've got three frames and their test pictures and your flashes, you know, not working properly or whatever. <laughs> you do that a couple of times and suddenly you realise that from the moment that that subject is in front of you, you start shooting and you start taking images so that if at any point, you know, any immediate point they disappear, you've got something safe. You've got a picture to send into the newspaper and you're not going to get a bollocking. If it carries on and you get all 10 minutes with that guy, you just keep expanding on the picture you've already got. The safe picture you've got, you make it a little bit better. And if he's still there, you make that picture a little bit better until you run out of ideas or you run out of time. If you translate that to weddings, then you can do the same thing with moments. Get your safe picture, like you said, and then try and work at improving that. Yeah. I think I do that subconsciously, but hearing someone articulate it the way you do and talking about it in relation to your newspaper shooting, it makes perfect sense. You know how you mentioned before that you would die if someone looked at your unedited images or you yeah. said something to that effect? What about when you're shooting for the newspaper? Didn't you just send off all your images or did you do your own editing? No, when we were digital, we did our own editing. So, so I started at the Times in 98 and we got, I, well, I got my first digital camera in 99, which is just in time to go and shoot the Kosovo War. Well, in fact, I went to Kosovo twice. The first time I went out with film and I took, um, that was a horrific journey. I, I took five bags of kit, including processing chemicals, you know, a lightproof bag, the film drums, a film scanner, a massive laptop, a sat phone. You know, it's probably... 30, 40 grand's worth of equipment. And I was so green at that point, I hitchhiked across Macedonia and bandit country in Albania with all this gear. Amazingly, I got to the assignment and I shot for three or four weeks on film. And then I I came back, I think I did a NATO summit in the States, and then they gave me a digital camera, the Kodak Canon digital camera, the 520. Went back to Kosovo to shoot with that digital camera. And then I was just sending through the individual images so i would send through thumbnails of six or ten images i'd shot that day call up the desk ask them which one they wanted they'd tell me the file number and then i'd send them the high-res scan of that image that was from from the digital camera rather not not the scanning the legs before then when it was on film if we were anywhere near london or the, the southeast we'd drive the film back into the office in Wapping, process it in the dark room make contact sheets take those to the picture desk and the, edit, the picture editor then would, would get the loop out. He'd look at the contact sheets, possibly look at the negatives, circle the ones that he wanted printing, go back to the dark room, get those 6x4 or 5 7 prints made up, type out a caption on a computer, print it out, stick it on the back of the print, take it back to the picture editor. And then he'd take those physical photographs into conference to sell your picture to the backbench. He would make the decision as, as to what went on the page. So the backbench would only see the edited images the picture editor would see the whole shoot and he'd know 
if you'd screwed it up. You know, if, if you came back <laughs> with six rolls of film from a simple job, I remember the, the best picture editor, I, or my first picture editor, a guy called Ashley Coombs, who now shoots weddings up in Scotland. And he said, Paul, I know when you screwed up a job because you come back with six rolls of film and you haven't been able to make a decision as to what the picture is. If you come back with one roll of film, I know that you've nailed it. And, and he when you're confident in what you're doing, you can get to the point of shooting the image that you know you need a lot quicker than, than when you're faffing around, experimenting, trying something out that doesn't work and you're not quite sure, you, you end up overshooting. Yeah, but isn't that how you're improving, you know, by getting that first shot and then messing about? Yeah, definitely. You definitely are. And I suppose that's, that's still what I'm doing with weddings and why I would be uncomfortable with someone looking at all six hours and images. <laughs> Because I'm still testing things out and trying things out. And I suppose to that respect, I've learned nothing since Ashley told me that I need to nail it in one roll of film. <laughs> when you were back there, back in those days, shooting for the newspapers and for news companies, how did you get your inspiration? You know, how did you learn or whose work were you following to improve yourself, if anyone? Yeah, do you know what? At that time, I really wasn't. I was just trying to make a living and trying to just trying to get to the next day if I'm honest. Of course, there was photographers that I'd followed and a lot of them were with the, the British newspaper photographers at the time at The Independent, The Times and The Telegraph and The Guardian in particular. People like Sean Smith, who was doing a lot of good work for The, the Guardian at the time, Don McCullen, Brian Harris, these kind of people who were producing amazing pictures for the broadsheets. Jane Bowne, have you heard, do you know Jane Bowne's work? No. Portrait photographer who worked predominantly for The Observer and, and The Guardian um, two kind of left of centre broadsheet newspapers in the UK. Well, actually, they're both owned by the same company. One's a Sunday paper and one's a daily paper. But she would shoot really beautiful, natural, window-lit portraits. And if you look at a set of her images, they're very similar pictures because she's concentrating on good, simple light and the strength of the photograph is the subject. And looking at that kind of work is what influenced me early on i've got to say i had a conversation with a friend of mine recently nick gray he was a, a news photographer at the times as well he subsequently went into weddings as well he works in the southeast of england it's all you guys flooding the market is it <laughs> well i thought that but there's only two or three news photographers that have made that jump most people go into pr or or freelancing in another area of news but yeah nick's probably he's one of my direct competitors although his style is slightly different from mine but he was at the Times at a similar time to myself and he shot in Iraq and Afghanistan and all over the place as well. And interestingly, he said to me the other day that now that he's shooting weddings in, in a documentary style, he feels like, and I, I can totally appreciate what he's saying here, he feels that he understands photojournalism and documentary photography much better now than he did working at the Times. And I think the reason is that when you work for a newspaper, you know what works and you know what fits the page and you know what's going to get published so you very much go out into an assignment knowing the kind of picture that you need to produce and there's no point in experimenting on a newspaper job because it, nine times out of ten it's never going to get published so you get very blinkered as to the kind of work that you produce it pays the bills and you get publications and it feels great to be working the next day but it doesn't stretch you as a photographer whereas i think working now for clients who expect something a little bit different. And when they look at your portfolio and if you're showing images that make you think a little bit and are, are slightly different from, from what other photographers are producing, then you need to continually push the boundaries. And I think that's what he was saying, that we now 
explore ourselves as photographers more than, than we ever did when we were kind of jobbing news photographers. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the UK has so many documentary-style wedding photographers? I mean, it seems to be the, the hot spot in the world, if you like, of that style of wedding photography. Cool, that's a good question. Do you, do you think so? Is it because I'm kind of familiar with photographers outside the UK and there's some in the States and Australia and, and other places that I follow, but you're right, the majority of the people that I, I know and, and the work that I see are in the UK and I'm kind of blinkered again in that I'm looking at documentary style photography because I just don't enjoy other styles of wedding photography. So I kind of thought that everyone was shooting in the way that I shoot and the way that, that my colleagues shoot, but do you think it's really quite niche in the world, in particular to the UK? I think so. I certainly think there's a concentration of that style of photography in the UK. And, you know, I think we all like to, well, a lot of photographers like to think of themselves as a somewhat documentary style photographer. But I get the impression that in the UK, you can be a photographer there and be 100% photojournalistic, not pose or not, not even talk to a client if that's, you know, the way you wanted to approach the day. Yeah. You really can just document what you see. I don't see that happening a lot in other countries or not as much. No. You're right. There is a, a high number of photographers working in that way. Not entirely that way. There's only there's only a couple that I know that work exactly that way. But most people will do group pictures and portraits. But you're right. Ninety percent of the time, having no communication with the client directly relating to what we're shooting. And yeah, looking at some of the photographers that are working in the states, in particular, there's a couple in Ireland that say that this is very unusual. And there's there's a either a gap in the market or, or clients just just aren't willing to to invest in that kind of photographer. I don't have an answer for you. The UK's, I don't know, the, the clients, they just appreciate that style of, of unposed photography. Do you talk to your clients during the day? I mean, if the bride's getting her dress on, say before the ceremony, and yeah. it's safe to come into the room, yeah. and you know that if she moved two metres to her right, the window light is going to be incredible, will you get her to move? Yeah, most of the time I won't, no. Really? Yeah. How does that not kill you? <laughs> Well, there's hundreds of fantastic images from that day. And yeah, if I move to two metres to the right, I would possibly get a stronger image than if I don't. But the precedent that sets for them, and not just for me, but for her, for her mum, for the bridesmaids, assuming that I'm going to be taking control and, and moving people, it changes the dynamic for the rest of the day. And it's not something that I really want to do. Okay, let me give you another scenario. Let's say it's later in the day. Let's say you know it's after the ceremony. You know the, the precedent has already been set. You're not going to direct anyone. Okay. But at the end, you know, after the ceremony, it's just you and the bride and the groom, and you know if they move somewhere, it's going to be a better shot. Is that still the same case? Just leave yeah. them where they are. Oh yeah, yeah. And unless it's the portrait session, if it's the ten minutes of portraits, then that's when I'm going to take them back to that spot of light that I saw earlier. That if they've moved a couple of meters to the left would have made a great documentary picture. I'm not going to move them at that point, but I'll remember that spot and use it for the portraits possibly. Mm-hmm. What would you say to a photographer listening that loves wedding photography and they want to be better at photojournalism? They want to develop that side of their photography mm. and move away from posing. What is the best way to get better at photojournalism? Cool. If you've got the cash, do the foundation workshop in the States. <laughs> it's not a plug for them but i thought you were going to say go and do the photojournalism photo course that you did that got totally ignored (laughs) i've heard the foundation get thrown around a few times Uh, mark seymour a few guys have mentioned that i've talked to yeah what's so special about it 
Well, I'm booked on it for next year, 2017. As a presenter or as a student? No, 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 as a student. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to going. Why, why would you go as a student? You've got 20-something <laughs> years as a photojournalist for the Times. Oh, man, like, you know, we, we never stop learning and I just want to push myself every single wedding, every, every year. I want, I want to get better at everything. And Foundation, if you look at the photographers that are teaching there and you look at their work, they see the world in a completely different way. And I need to get a bit more of that into what I'm shooting. You know, I have a vision myself and I'm quite strong. I have quite a strong brand to the photography that I produce, but I want to make that stronger and I want to see things in a different way and capture moments in a different way that I'm doing at the moment. Do you think you can go to a weekend workshop and come away and change the way you, you shoot? Yeah, it's possible. I think if you immerse yourself around people that have a philosophy in the way that they work, it can certainly rub off on you and it can change the way you start looking at the world. And that's just the beginning. It's then up to you to develop that and to look for other influences and to develop your style and to find out what works and what doesn't work for you. You may well go on one of these workshops and be all fired up. You get back to your, you know, you can shoot your first wedding the next Saturday and all of a sudden none of it fits, none of it works. Your personality is wrong, the kind of clients you're booking it just doesn't work and you might not be comfortable with that. It's a continual process, I think, of evolving the way you shoot, the clients that you're booking and the images that you're making. I mean, do you think your images now are, are the same or different from what you were shooting just two years ago, Andrew? No, no, I think they're different for sure. And, and I've made a conscious decision, I think, to change the way I'm shooting as well. I guess I sound so shocked, <laughs> and you can hear it in my voice, to hear someone with your experience, you know, and someone that's done what you've done, you know, like I said, you're the war photographer, you know, you're the guy that's been doing this for your whole life. I just find it amazing that you think you could go to a workshop and those guys teach you something when you probably have more experience than all of them. Uh, ex experience in what? You know, it's just, it's photographing humanity and humans and people and relationships and light. And whether that's, you know, I'm, you say war photographer. I wasn't a war photographer. I was a news photographer that got dropped into some tricky situations every now and then. The, the kind of, you know, the war photographers that do that sort of work day in, day out have a completely different experience and different way of approaching a story. And when they're doing it continually for probably six, nine months a year, they start seeing things in a different way. You know, most of their most of their job, most of the war photographer's job is logistics and administration and making sure you're safe, making sure you're in the right place at the right time. But when they get into the moments that they're shooting, they will see something completely different from a UK-based news photographer who's parachuted into a war zone for two weeks to photograph, I don't know, the, the British involvement in a conflict and then come home and do Chelsea Flower Show. <laughs> uh, that's, there's two different ways of looking at that same job. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is explore other people's vision of how they see not just weddings because I don't see myself as a wedding photographer you know like a lot of photographers we're photographing people at weddings and so to see those relationships and interactions from someone else's point of view another photographer's point of view and try and build a little bit more of that into my understanding of how I work on a day I think is, is that's really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The more I hear about the foundation, the more interested I am in going on to see what it's all about. It sounds fantastic, especially if you know, hearing someone like you wants to go there, I think adds even more credence to the whole idea of going to one of these workshops. Yeah. I think the other thing with foundation is taking you completely out of your comfort zone. And, you know, I spent a lot of time going into unfamiliar situations, unfamiliar countries or 
situations, meeting people for the first time that you have to suddenly sum up instantly. And to do the foundation workshop in, I think it's in Texas this year, it's a completely different culture. I'll get an assignment that I have absolutely no idea or preconceptions about beforehand. Um, I think that's the challenge, isn't it? To do something completely out of your comfort field. We do, I do 45 weddings a year and every every wedding is essentially has the same process and the same structure. The people are different, obviously, every time, but it's very, very familiar work. And I think to get out of that familiarity is going to be what drives you to find a, a new way of expressing yourself. You think if you go and shoot something totally different, you get out of your comfort zone for a weekend or you know, however often you do this, that's going to change the way you look at the weddings that you go to every single week. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And I hope it's not a, a short-term effect. When are you booked in to go? Because we've got to talk after this now. <laughs> well, I think it's February or March next year. Fantastic. All right. We're going to have to hook up and have a chat about how it all was and yeah, definitely. how it's changed your, your photography. Yeah, yeah, sure. I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, one of your tricky situations and time's getting away and I've totally forgot to thank my sponsor, which is the Image Salon, for putting today's show on and making it all happen. If you haven't heard me talking about the Image Salon in the past, they are image editors. They're based in Canada. The big difference with these guys is you are assigned one particular editor to work on your photography. You work with them to get the look that you're after with your photos, whether it's black and white, colour, whether you're going for a vintage look or a certain feel, they'll work with you, that single editor, and they'll make sure they get that look for you. And they continue working with you until you get the look that you're after. There's four different levels that you can go for with your post-production, from the very, very basic levels to all the way up to everything, you know, dodging and burning, liquefy, skin retouching, teeth whitening. You can go the whole hog. You can go absolutely nuts. One of the things I had an email about from a listener and in regard to JPEGs, they will edit JPEGs as well. So you don't need to be a raw shooter. You can shoot JPEGs, send them your files. And they also will help you do your editing. So for, I think it was five cents, I'm guessing now I should know this off the top of my head, but I believe uh, five cents per image for all the images that you send to them. So for a thousand images, it's $50. They'll go through, they'll pick your best shots and edit those. So the five cents per image is for the culling and then you pay for your image editing on top. But again, that's working with that same image editor. Paul, have you ever outsourced or do you like the idea of outsourcing? Yeah, totally. I've, I've used Image Salon and had some really great results from them. I've got to say, I think they'd have to pay me to see all my unedited files. <laughs> I don't know how you go sending 5,000. That may not be economical. (laughs) No, no. Unless it frees up a lot of time for you. Yeah, I use outsource my processing during the summer and it really, really does help to free me up. I'm looking at my, I've got a a whiteboard in my office with um, magnetic kind of stickers on on the whiteboard that I write my client's name down and what needs to be done. I move them around and I'm looking at it at the moment and I've got one, two, three, four, four weddings being outsourced at the moment. But that frees me up to work on the five photo films that are outstanding and six albums to design. And if I didn't outsource my imaging, I'd have a lot of angry, angry clients emailing me for photo films that are still a year out of date. Mate, were you scared sending your photos away to be edited by someone else? Yeah, I think it's the culling that I want to have complete control over. And it was about a couple of years ago that outsourcing your image editing really started to take off although i noticed it and at the time i thought god i would never do that i just couldn't trust someone to to have the same vision as me but i think it's down to the culling if you get the color right then someone is doing the tweaking the dodging the burning and the color correction the creative process is pretty much done at that point if it comes back looking not quite how you you imagine then it's you know 30 seconds to tweak it in lightroom 
it's not, it's not a big deal. And it's realistically not saving me a massive amount of time. I think it takes me about eight hours, six to eight hours to process a wedding in Lightroom. When it comes back from the outsource, I probably spend about an hour, hour and a half tweaking that. So it's saving me five or six hours. But in reality, that's a couple of days work because I just I can't sit down and, and do eight hours in front of Lightroom in one go. Mate, that's awesome. Look, for you, the listener, if you want to check these guys out, and I urge you to try them if you're going to try someone, it's The Image Salon over at theimagesalon.com. Mate, tell me about one of these tricky situations you're in as a, as a journalist. Was it scary? Yeah, I'll combine this with an embarrassing moment, if you like. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, crikey, yeah. I can't believe I'm telling you this now. <laughs> so um, when was this? Let me think back. Um, it must have been early 2000s and the Queen was hosting the German Chancellor, Chancellor Schroeder at the time. And it was a big state event. There was a state banquet at Windsor Castle and there was you know, all the, the usual dignitaries involved there. And how that works news photography wise is there'll be, they call it a, a photography pool where two or three photographers will be chosen from newspapers and the agencies it's usually one agency photographer one newspaper photographer will go into the the situation and shoot the official picture so that those pictures are then distributed amongst all of the other newspapers and agencies so it just cuts down having 20 odd photographers you know all fighting for the same position you just have one photographer doing it so it was my turn to do the pool up at Windsor Castle and the picture was going to be the queen I think most of the royals were there so there was Charles, Andrew, probably wasn't Camilla at the time. But, you know, there was a lot of royals, plus the German Chancellor, plus some other dignitaries. And it was a a group picture of all of them. And then we would get to shoot the banquet from a balcony. And then 10 minutes later, run like hell to process our films and, and send the images back. It was a black tie do, which meant that I had to put a tux on. So I grabbed the tux out of the wardrobe, hung it in the car, drove off to Windsor in my jeans and... And trainers parked up. Uh, uh, I was good and early, you know, I wasn't in a rush. Started to get dressed in my car in the tux, got my shirt on, went to get the trousers on, and had a little bit tight around my thighs. And um, I suddenly realised I hadn't worn these trousers for 10 years. And I put on too much weight, I couldn't get these bloody trousers on. Uh, so I've managed to I put the seat back on the car, lay down, wriggled into these trousers. Uh, couldn't do the, the fastener up. You know what's coming, don't you? Um, I kind of waddled up to, uh, up to Windsor Castle. We got into position. We're in one of the rooms there and all set up. I had uh, 2470 flash gun ready to go. One of the PRs came out and said, oh, by the way, you can't use flash because the Chancellor's just had an eye operation and it's going to interfere with his vision, so please, no flash. So the flash gone off, put it in the bag. There was a couple of other photographers, a German photographer from one of the German papers, another UK photographer. All the walls come out from the Chancellor's there, we're shooting away, we've got about 15, 20 seconds to do this, do this picture. All of a sudden, the German photographer switches his flash gun and starts shooting with flash. And... You know, I'm thinking, God, this is this is going to be a much better picture. It's, it's a dully lit room, um, a picture of ambient light on film compared to someone shooting it with flash. He's going to get a better picture. I panicked and reached down for my flash gun. And as I bent down, of course, my child's a massive split. You know, it doesn't <laughs> split. 
There's no way you couldn't have noticed that the photographer just ripped his trousers in front of the Queen. Uh, <laughs> each of the flash got stuck on the camera and got three or four frames before they were all whisked away. <laughs> oh, that's so, fantastic. I've lost my trousers at weddings before since then, and now I have, uh, I have a spare pair in the car. Uh, so that was the lesson I learned. But uh, yeah, I don't think you can beat splitting your trousers in front of the Queen. <laughs> Did you get any reaction at all from her? <laughs> none, none whatsoever. <laughs> I, think she's, uh, I think she's professional enough just to uh, stare into the distance and <laughs> continue <laughs> the photograph. Were you ever allowed to photograph her again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we, I did a Oh, you were? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I didn't get blacklisted from that, thankfully. <laughs> I think that picture didn't make, but the picture from the balcony of the banquet I think made the front of the Telegraph and the Times the next morning. So it was worth the embarrassment of um, splitting my trousers. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> was that a buzz? Like as a star photographer, did you still get a buzz of getting the front page? Oh, yeah. Yeah, every time. I never, never stopped. I think that's why you shoot for newspapers is because you're not seeing a newspaper on the front page on the newsstands. You know, London's a great city and you can go out on a Saturday night, see a film in the cinema before everyone else in the country, come out from the cinema and in the newsstands, you've got tomorrow's paper there because it's just been printed. And to see that, to see your image on the front there and other people looking at it and talking about it on the tube and stuff, hey, you know, you never be that. Fantastic. Paul, this has been a real pleasure, mate. Every single minute I've had a ball chatting to you. Where is the best place for the listener to check out your work? On my website, there's a good tab on there, latest weddings that I put slideshows up from the last six weddings and that continually rolls through the year. Instagram, I'm posting quite a bit on Instagram at the moment, so that's another good place to find me. Twitter, but not so much on there. Probably Instagram or or my website. Fantastic. Well, mate, I'll add links to both those and uh, anything else I can find on you on the internet and I'll add links to them in the show notes uh, to go with this episode, mate. So thanks again. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. And before I let you go, like, you know what? I didn't actually ask you, were you ever placed in a life-threatening situation? Like, were you ever fearful for your life working? Uh, yeah, yeah, a few times. Have you got one you can share? Just one quick one? Yeah. Okay, so back 2003, I went with war correspondent Anthony Lloyd for The Times. We went to cover the Iraq invasion, and our brief was to go into Iran to go across the border of Iran into Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, and cover the story from, from that point of view. There was a fear that the Americans were going to come in through, through Turkey, which would cause all sorts of problems with Russia. And, you know, it was quite a big side of the story. It never happened in the end, but we spent six to eight weeks, I suppose, with the Kurds in northern Iraq. One of the stories we did was with the PKK, the, um, the Kurdish, well, say terror group, but, you know, one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter. But they routinely attack Turkey and they're looking for an independent state across Turkey, Iran and Iraq. And we managed to get an interview with, with the leader of the PKK, this Ocalan's brother. The main leader, Ocalan, is, is still serving a jail term in Turkey. But we managed to secure an interview with this guy and it was all very secret and we had to meet at a certain point at a certain time and then they would check the car out, check we weren't being followed, take us on a, a very long-winded route through the mountains and then we'd have to swap cars, go into another car, continue the journey. It took a, a day or so to get into the middle of the mountains to meet this guy. You know, they were very fearful that someone was tracking us and that they would know where the leader of the PKK was. And they were still viewed, I think they still are, 
as quite a major terrorist organisation at the time. So anyway, halfway through this journey, we stopped halfway up the mountains and they took us into a little hut and sat us down. They made me get all my cameras out and placed them all in front of me. Anthony was there where there was another journalist from, from the Telegraph with us. Um, we had a fixer there as well. And we all sat in a line in this little hut on the mountainside. This guy came out with a video camera and pointed at us and asked us our name, what we were doing and a little bit about ourselves. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, this this is the time I've been seeing these kind of videos on yes. on the news for the last couple of years before something awful happens to the person being interviewed. And I just couldn't get that out of my mind. And I was just absolutely terrified that that's what this video was for. It came to me and I held it together and answered the questions that they asked and they carried on moving along. And then they put the camera away, went out to the kitchen, brought out a whole load of food and we sat down and had a feast and this video <laughs> was for um, for their PR department holy crap <laughs> they wanted to show I would have been shitting myself oh yeah god I really was even when you went to the kitchen and he's rumbling around for the knife you'd still be freaking out <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah oh crap gee were the other guys thinking the same as you yeah, yeah. None of us really knew knew what the score was there. And they, you know, they treated us with, with the utmost respect. And I had a good couple of days with them. I learned how to strip an AK-47, talk to a PKK terrorist. And we've got some good photographs from there and a good story. And then, you know, there was other times in that trip when we came under fire at a couple of points. But you don't really have time to, to consider the outcome. You just you know, trying to find cover or, or get back in the vehicle or avoid the minefield or whatever was more pressing on, on your mind. You don't have the luxury of sitting there imagining the worst-case scenario as some guys asking you questions on video. That's, that is horrific. Mate, again, thanks so much, mate. It's been a real pleasure. It's an awful but a good place to finish, I think. For you, the listener, if you want to check out the links, if you want to find out more about Paul, head over to photobizx.com forward slash tpx08 and you'll see links and some examples of Paul's work there as well. And also, just to finish off, a big thanks to the Image Salon for sponsoring today's episode. Thanks, Paul. Great. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com.